Hello and welcome to episode 18 of Talking Shit About with me, Elizabeth, the dogs Link and Martok in the background, and my fiancé, Gil. Hi, boo. Hi. <laughs> um, so Gil is here because he's a history buff, and <laughs> you're laughing. Yeah, yeah. History buff is sort of an exaggeration, but you know, I, don't know. I, I studied history in college. <laughs> <laughs> And you're the one who told me this story, and it was captivating. And ever since I started the podcast, I wanted to do this. So I'm really glad you were down to do this with me, so it wasn't just me talking for however many hours this is going to take. <laughs> no problem. So today, real quick, Gil, can you tell us what we're talking? I'm going to put you on the spot. What, what are we talking about? What is this event that's about to happen? So broadly what we're talking about is the siege at Ruby Ridge in Idaho and I believe 1992? I think so. 92 or 93. This is the, the history buff getting called out on dates. So Ruby Ridge is a complicated topic because broadly it's the people who focus on it are American right-wing extremists or at least people who have a leaning that way. And it's because most of the topics involved in, you know, federal government overreach, federal siege on just an individual man seeking his freedom, they're, they're the exact buzzwords that get that particular subset of the U.S. culture riled up and excited. Because they, it, it feels, it, to them, it legitimizes their, their ideology and their belief structures about what's wrong with the U.S. government today. Yeah, and it's especially scary, I mean, putting aside all of the Aryan Nation Association and everything and all of that happening, it's really scary because, like, living in a remote kind of rural area and, like, living sustainably and just, like, living your best life away from, like, the government is, like, also a pretty leftist dream as well, right? Absolutely, like, absolutely. That sounds like a wonderful life, and so it's yeah. scary to think that you can be put in a situation where your whole family is slaughtered because of XYZ, which we'll get into. Yeah, yeah. And the XYZ is important, and it's not good stuff. Yeah, if you're looking for uh, a happy story, this is not it. Uh, yeah, it's not a happy story, or and it's not about good people. Yeah. It's important to recognize <laughs> throughout all of this. <laughs> yeah, and on that note, yeah, so we're going to be talking about violence, death, Racism, anti-Semitism, any other isms or anything? Probably. Uh, yeah, they'll come up. Just expect a lot of isms. Yeah. And before we get into it, our three main sources, I'll have links to everything in the show notes. They are Ruby Ridge by Jess Walter, which used to be Be Every Knee Shall Bow, but they changed it. I'm not sure why. I tried looking into it. And then... The book by Randy and Sarah Weaver, The Federal Siege at Ruby Ridge, as well as the PBS documentary. What is that one called? I think it's just called Ruby Ridge. There's so many, and they all have, like, basically the same name. Um, Generation Y also does a really good episode about Ruby Ridge. It's the only one I've liked that all of them that I've listened to. So um, shout out to them for doing a really good job. But I wanted more context, so... We're getting it. I wish I could say that these episodes are all going to come out really soon, one after the other, and all in December, but I can't guarantee that because we got engaged, we got a little distracted, 
We've been busy. It's also holiday season. It's... I'm dealing with a lot of family, so. Family. We got, I got the new Pokemon. Gil's been playing Emerald on my old advance. <laughs> so things, you know, life, life happens. So I'm going to do my best to have the next, next episode out by January. But here we go. Randall Claude Weaver, also known as Pete, as he hated the name Randall, was born January 3rd, 1948, to Clarence and Wilma Weaver. Randy and his three older sisters grew up in Villisca, yeah, a conservative farming community in southern rural Iowa. In addition to working on the family farm, young Randy, because that's what most everybody calls him, like I only see him referenced as Pete in just Walter's book. I don't know why. In addition to working on the family farm, young Randy enjoyed shooting and hunting with his dad, who always stressed gun safety. Randy also noted in his book that he never saw his father kill anything. The family was religious, bouncing from denomination to denomination, including evangelical, Baptist, and Presbyterian churches. In August of 1959, the family moved to Jefferson, Iowa, where between sixth grade and graduation, Randy worked over six different gigs, including baling hay and working as a paper carrier for the Des Moines? Des Moines. Des Moines. Jesus, register. There, he settled into a Presbyterian church. From how he told it in his bio, it seems like he had a fairly happy childhood. After graduating in 1966, Randy attended Iowa Central Community College in Fort Dodge for two years, driving 50 miles to class each day. Fort Dodge was more racially diverse than Jefferson, and Randy seemed to get along well with everyone. It was during his second year that he met his future wife, Vicki Jordanson, although at the time they only dated casually. In October of 1968, Randy enlisted in the Army. During his three years of service, he completed Special Forces training and became a Green Beret, although he would only serve stateside. He achieved the rank of sergeant with a spotless record and the National Defense Service Medal and Parachute Badge. Despite not seeing combat, his Green Beret training would later come back to haunt him. Eventually, he was stationed at Fort Bragg. Randy knew, grew disillusioned with the military after seeing its corruption. Um, it's funny, that's actually a, a, an interesting parallel with uh, Timothy McVeigh as well, which this story has tons of parallels in his is definitely one of the inspirations of the Oklahoma City bombing. So, just a little little aside there. Oh yeah, that name comes up. During his final year in the service, he rekindled his romance with Vicki Jordanson, spending most of his leave time visiting her in Fort Dodge. They married shortly after his honorable discharge in October of 1971. Now, Vicki. Vicki Jean Jordanson was born June 20th, 1949, to a religious family on a farm in Colville, Iowa. Her parents were Dave and Jean, and I don't know if this is Jean or Jean Jordanson. I'm going to say Jean. And she had two siblings, brother Lanny and sister Julie. Making a nest. Randy described Vicky in his bio as a small, beautiful woman of Scottish and English descent with dark brown eyes and reddish brown hair. Although, honestly, it looks more black and everyone else describes it as black. Doesn't matter. In his book, Jess Walter describes Vicky as a jack-of-all-trades and incredibly smart. In school, she got A's, was vice president of the Future Business, Business Leaders of America, and a star of the Pleasant Valley Pixies 4-H. Jean was a Congregationalist, while David practiced a branch of Mormonism, taking the children to the services every week. Here's what Britannica has to say about the Community of Christ, formerly known as the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The Community of Christ claims to be the legal continuation of the church founded by Joseph Smith at Fayette in Seneca County, New York in 1830. World headquarters are in Independence, Missouri. In the early 21st century, the church's members numbered about 250,000, 
with congregations in some 50 countries in addition to the U.S. and Canada. The Community of Christ does not accept the appellation of... Appalachian, but not Appalachian like the mountains. Yeah, <laughs> that one. Mormon, <laughs> because of the association with polygamy. Its belief system was based on the teachings of the Bible, the Book of Mormon, and the Doctrine of Covenants, a book of revelations received by the prophets of the Community of Christ and accepted by the vote of the General Conference. The Community of Christ believes in the Trinity, the doctrines of faith in God, repentance of sin, baptism by immersion, laying on of hands, and the resurrection of the dead graded reward or punishment after death according to the conduct in this life, the continuity of divine revelation and the open canon of scripture, the restoration of Christ's church and the New Testament pattern, and the doctrine of stewardship and personal and economic life. It anticipates the return of Christ and a millennial reign. Do you have any thoughts on that before we continue? Nope. No, yeah, getting, into, getting into the weeds with uh, Mormonism is, it's in the weeds. Yeah, we're, we get in the weeds here. I don't know how to like do a segue with this, but I wanted to include this um, just because we're trying to get as much inform. Well, I'm trying to get as much information about everyone. And so you can have all of the context and make your own assumptions. Um, but this one kind of speaks for itself. Um, in a later letter to her cousin, Vicki once wrote, you can't tell me that Joseph Smith advocated race mixing. There was no black RLDS elders until our generation. So and, yeah, that's a very important historical note on Mormonism is it wasn't until I believe the late 60s or early 70s that that people of color were allowed into the upper echelons of the Mormon church. They were you could go to go to Africa and proselytize, but you couldn't they wouldn't let them give them any uh, status in the church. Yeah. Thank you. Throughout her early life, Vicky's family butted heads with the government as the area became more developed. At one point, Vicky's family was under threat of being displaced from their home due to the proposed highway construction, but thankfully a neighbor of theirs was able to influence the project and the family was able to stay in their home. After graduating from Fort Dodge in High School in 1967, Vicky enrolled at the Iowa Central Community College and graduated with a two-year degree in business and took a job as a secretary at Sears. At the age of 21, she met Pete a.k.a. Randy Weaver. At some point, she gets a degree in education. I didn't find where, but it comes up later in the story. Um, just not sure when it happened or if that was related to her business degree somehow. Anyways, as er mentioned earlier, Vicki and Randy Weaver married in November of 1971, a month after Randy's discharge from the Army. After the wedding, they moved to Cedar Falls, Iowa, where Randy attempted to pursue a career in federal law enforcement through the University of Northern Iowa, but dropped out after finding work at a John Deere factory. They became more and more invested in their religion, visiting the Cedarloo Baptist Church in Waterloo every Sunday, and eventually began holding Bible studies for their friends in their home. The couple tried for four years to have a child, but it got to the point where Vicki suggested they adopt, but Randy convinced her instead that they should buy a Corvette. Six weeks after they bought the new car, Vicki discovered she was pregnant. After their first child, Sarah, was born in March of 1976, they exchanged the Corvette for a family car. The Weavers would go on to have three additional children. Samuel Hansen, born two years after Sarah in April of 1978, who formed a really strong bond with his older sister. After Sam was born, Vicki would have a miscarriage before the birth of her second daughter. Rachel, who was born fall of 1981, was described by Randy as a quiet little happy baby. Oh, quiet happy little baby, but same thing. 
and finally Elisheba, who would later be born on their property in Idaho. There were a couple factors that influenced the Weaver's decision to move to Idaho in the summer of 1983. The first was that their reputation was tarnished when a former friend of Randy's, known only as Woody, tried to turn the Weavers into the IRS. Um, and this name might be in the other book. This, I got this from one book. There's a lot of sources. There's a lot going on. Anyway, Woody tried to turn the Weavers into the IRS, claiming the family was soliciting others to form a tax protest movement. Randy disputed this, saying in his bio that he had always paid his taxes, and that fact was confirmed by an IRS audit in 1985. The second factor in their decision was to, to move was that Vicky and Randy were becoming more extreme in their political and religious views and began to feel alienated within their community. Vicky wanted to homeschool her children due to the paganistic nature of public school, and at the time, um, homeschooling was illegal in Iowa, which is bizarre. Um, Vicky would eventually begin to receive messages directly from God. Randy didn't go into specifics of his and Vicky's belief systems in his book, probably because he would, knew they weren't quote-unquote politically correct and that the details may alienate a sizable chunk of his potential audience. But here are a couple quotes to kind of give you an idea. On government, quote, We are not anti-government. We are anti-bad government. At any given time, there are portions of our government that are not acting according to the people's wishes. Sometimes they are even acting unlawfully. We want to trust the government, but we have learned that it is not always a good idea and on white supremacy. To set the record straight, we are not and never have been supremacists. We can't help the fact that we were born white. A supremacist is a person who believes he or she is superior over another because of their race, religion, or even social status. You can consider us separatists both religiously and politically speaking. A religious separatist believes in freedom of religion and believes that he has the right to worship in his own way. Also, part of that religious separatist belief is that the different races should not intermarry. As far as that belief is concerned, you could be black, white, red, or yellow. So not great. Yeesh. Yeah. It's a little something. Racist. Per his bio, this is his recommended reading list to kind of give you an idea. Um, feel free to comment on any of these, boo. Uh, 1984 by George Orwell. None Dare Call It Conspiracy by Gary Allen. The Final Reformation by C.J. Coster. Babylon Mystery Religion by Ralph Woodrow. Unintended Consequences by John Ross. Atlas Shrugged by Ayn Rand. Wow. <laughs> 101 Things to Do Till the Revolution by Claire Wolf. And Call to Serve by Bo Greitz. Oh, Jesus. Bo Greitz comes up in this story later, too. Oh, yeah, he does. And I always laugh when I see 1984 mentioned uh, by, by broadly right-wing, or especially right-wing extremist people. It's There's some quote that's like, 1984 and the Bible are the two books most quoted by people who either didn't read it or at least didn't understand it. Um, George Orwell being a well-recorded anarchist. Um, and, and by anarchist, I mean leftist anarchist. Uh, but anyways, that's neither here nor there. It's just amusing. Yes. In addition to the King's James Bible, another influential book in Vicky's life was Hal Lindsey's The Late Great Planet Earth. Here's a blurb from Wikipedia about the book. Oh, that's a really long blurb. The late great planet Earth is a treatment of literalist, premillennial, dispensational eschatology. That is, part of theology concerned with death, judgment, and the final destiny of the soul and humankind. 
As such, it compared end-time prophecies in the Bible with then-current events in an attempt to predict future scenarios resulting in the rapture of believers before the tribulation and second coming of Christ to establish the, his thousand-year, i.e. millennial, kingdom on earth. That is a very long sentence. Mm-hmm. Emphasizing various passages in the book of Daniel, Ezekiel, and Revelation, Lindsay originally suggested the possibility that these climactic events might occur during the 1980s, which he interpreted as one generation from the foundation of modern Israel during 1948. A major event according to some conservative evangelical schools of eschatological thought. There's a whole lot behind that, and it it's the same reason that a lot of evangelical Christians are very, very supportive of Israel, despite Israel being a, a Jewish state, and we don't have time to get into Israel and Palestine and all of that either, so we, that, that, that'd be its own seven series episode, <laughs> or seven episode series. All right. Descriptions of alleged fulfilled prophecy were offered as proof of the infallibility of God's word and the and evidence that unfulfilled prophecies would soon find their denouement in God's plan for the planet. He cited an increase in the frequency of famines, wars, and earthquakes as major events just prior to the end of the world. He also foretold a so- Soviet invasion of Israel, War of Gog and Magog. Lindsay also predicted that European economic community, which preceded the European Union, was destined, according to biblical prophecy, to become a United States of Europe. That's sort of funny. Uh, Which, in turn, he says, is destined to become a revived Roman Empire ruled by the Antichrist. Lindsay wrote that he had concluded, since there was no apparent mention of America in the books of Daniel or Revelation, that America would not be a major geopolitical power by the time the tribulations of the end times arrived. Thank you for reading that. No problem. Clearly, I'm having a hard time reading. I'm like, oh, I need really need to get my glasses. Oh, I was going to add something to that. Don't remember what it was. There's too much anyways. Another more foreboding text of Vicky's choice was H.G. Wells' A Dream of Armageddon from Jess Walter's book. You want me to take this one or you got it? I can do it. Okay. Quote, in Wells' story, the man dreams he is a great leader living with a woman in the future on a thousand-foot cliff with a view in several directions. On his cliff, men, co- men come to him and tell him they are at war with him. Why cannot you leave me alone, the dreamer asks. I have done with these things. I have ceased to be anything but a private man. Yes, the other man answers, but what have you thought? This talk of war, these reckless challenges, these wild aggressions. Later in the story, the man and woman flee, but they are not followed. There is no refuge for us, he says in his dream. They escape down their hill into Naples, Italy, and are followed by airplanes. In the end, the couple stays together in the face of horrible danger. Even now, I do not repent. I will not repent. I made my choice, and I will hold on to the end. Finally, the man and woman are killed, and the dream, like the short story, ends. Life imitates art. Yeah, it's oddly, oddly poignant. Yes, I really wanted to include that. And if you aren't familiar with the story, you'll, you'll find out why. Randy and Vicky believed things like world events were proving the prophecies of the end times were happening, that computers were quote-unquote the beast of revelations, and the Holocaust never happened. Uh, it did, by the way. Yes. Julia believed that Randy was being radicalized by her sister's beliefs. In fact, the Cedar Falls Police Department was secretly looking into the Weaver's Bible group, known as The Group, to determine if it was a cult. <laughs> the group. <laughs> the group. It's very clever. I guess that's what other people were calling them. They were just like referring to them oh, as the group, okay. and then it just okay. became a thing. It, it wasn't like they named themselves. It was also during this tumultuous time for the Weavers that their quote-unquote friend, Shannon, connected the Weavers with a reporter from the Waterloo Courier named Dan Dundon, although in his book, Randy gets his name wrong, and it's D-U-N-D-E-N. So is this really fun to kind of like 
just keep fact checking everything because Randy was a lot of things. Unfortunately, a writer was not one, but you know he did his best. Dundon had heard the of the group and wanted to probe Randy further on his beliefs. Here's what Randy said about the interview. We kept trying to explain our views and philosophies. Dundon indicated to us that he wasn't interested in what we thought. He wanted to see our food supplies and especially our guns and ammunition. Shannon had evidently told him that survivalists often build fortified compounds with a 300-yard kill zone around them. Dundon asked if we were going to do that. We told him no. We didn't think that sort of thing was necessary. When the article came out in the paper, Dundon had lied and said we were going to build a fortified compound with a 300-yard kill zone. Later, Dundon would repeat this lie in court under oath. Although he tape-recorded the interview, Dundon now claims he lost the tape. Yeah. Again, that'll come back later. Between the botched interview, tension between their family and friends, and the IRS drama, Weavers were done with her life in Iowa. In the summer of 1983, the family picked up and drove to Idaho, stopping by Reptile Gardens in Black Hills, South Dakota on their way. Shout out to Reptile Gardens. I haven't been as an adult, but as a kid, it was like one of my favorite places on earth. I'm going to put a picture on my Instagram of me at Reptile Gardens because it's super relevant. I don't know how else to promote this. They were trying to find their new home before September 7th, as God told them they would. After three to four weeks of searching northern Idaho, Idaho, on September 6th, the Weavers found their property about eight miles south of Bonner's Ferry, a property now known as Ruby Ridge. Randy had this to say about the move to the mountains. Quote, Our goal in our dream as we left was to move into the mountains to be free, free to worship the Creator in our own way, to build a home and live as self-sufficient as possible. We were not looking to do battle with anyone. We did not hate anyone. We wanted to be left alone. And to quote the Bible, Then let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains. Matthew 24. The term Ruby Ridge was coined by the media. According to the Weavers and Jess Walter, the real name of the area is actually Caribou Ridge and Ruby Creek Drainage and was originally inhabited by Kootenai Indians. Their property spanned 20 acres of the craggy forested mountainside. They built their new home by hand upon a knoll overlooking a birch grove and an outcropping of rocks, from which the family could see anyone coming down their driveway. The modest two-story cabin consisted of three bedrooms upstairs, and on the ground floor, a living room, bathroom, kitchen, and pantry. Because the terrain was so uneven, the cabin, made of plywood, sawmill waste, and two-by-fours, was built upon stilts. The cabin was built to last three years, just long enough for Armageddon. <laughs> cool. Uh, there existed on the property a root cellar, pump house, chicken house, outhouse, and woodshed. It was Vicky's father, Dave, who helped set up the gravity-fed water system for use in the summer months, as the lines would freeze in the winter. And so Sam trained his yellow lab striker as a sled dog to pull containers of water using a harness that he and Sarah made. Oh, I forgot a content warning, but... You know it's a sad story if there's a dog involved. I'm just going to say that. As for critters, they also had two horses, Amigo and Lightning, and Sarah was definitely a horse girl, while Rachel, on the other hand, tended to the chickens. They also had two other dogs, both collie mutts. The Weaver children were homeschooled by their mother, who had earned an associate's in education. Again, not sure when. The children studied four hours per day, four days per week. In addition to their schooling, Randy said they worked hard at teaching their children values such as respect and appreciation for one another, and especially honesty. He wrote that his children were his pride and joy. Aside from teaching the children, Vicky spent her time making clothes for her family, refinishing old furniture, varnishing cabinets and floors, sewing curtains and cushions, teaching Sarah to make rugs, and all the while keeping up on the house and garden. According to Randy, blue is Vicky's favorite color, and that was reflected in her work, 
as you'll see on the curtains of the infamous cabin door. Another conflicting uh, fact that's really not that relevant, but I wanted to throw it in anyways. Uh, Jess Walter's book says that Vicky's favorite color was purple, which was her bridesmaid's dress's color. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to believe Randy on this one. And maybe it changed. That's what you said. Again, little details. We're getting in the weeds. The kids also stayed busy by tending to the animals, fishing, exploring, reading. Sam especially loved to read, most notably history books, and helping their mother with household chores. Randy noted that Vicky was particularly patient with young Rachel, who typically made the chores take longer than they should. How dare these child laborers take take too long? <laughs> <laughs> After moving into their new homestead, they met Kevin Harris, who at the time was 16 and barely scraping by, doing labor for his mother's ex-boyfriend. Kevin was born sometime around 1967 and had a ninth grade level education. His father passed away when he was just two years old, and he says he was raised by a series of stepfathers. Kevin spent his time with the Weavers to help build their cabin, joining Sarah and Sam as they fished, and enjoying Vicky's home-cooked meals. Kevin would end up living with the Weavers on their property on and off for the next nine years. Here's what Kevin later had to say about the Weavers. I was never at Ruby Ridge because of religion or politics. I know that a lot of people there were offended by Randy's and Vicky's beliefs, but I visited the Weavers simply because they were like family to me. They loved me, and I loved them. They always welcomed me, accepted me, and made me feel that I belonged. They were warm and hospitable. There was always a place to sleep and food on the table, even when they didn't have much for themselves. And Sarah and Kevin were especially close, too. And by all accounts, the Weavers had a happy, loving household, but mostly on the inside. A man named Terry Kinnison had to put $3,000 to have a trailer and barn put on the Weavers' property, but something went wrong and Kinnison bounced. He said he was kicked off. Randy says otherwise. He told the local sheriff, the FBI, and Secret Service that Randy was planning on killing President Reagan, which I wish he had, the Idaho governor, John Evans, telling him that Randy was stockpiling weapons and ammunition and he had rigged the property with explosives. Samuel Holly, who was half Kootenai and half German Jewish, lived next to the Weavers for a time and corroborated Kennison's tale, adding that anyone who went on the property would have to face three armed people, Randy, Vicky, and Sammy, who was six years old at that time. The Weavers wrote letters in response, trying to clear their name, even writing to Reagan himself. He never responded. What a dick. I know. That's <laughs> the worst thing Reagan ever did. We should do an episode on Reagan. We should do one. I'm sure Behind the Bastards already has one. Yeah. And yeah. Anyways, after this, the FBI agent named Kenneth Weiss, who had only been in the FBI for three years, was sent to Idaho to investigate the order. Randy Weaver's name came across his desk, but he ultimately dismissed Randy as involved or having any relationship with the order. In 1984, the Weaver's life on the mountain would all come crumbling down after Randy met a man named Frank Kumnick. Real quick, uh, we want to have a little disclaimer. A, we are not promoting or supporting any of these beliefs. Like, Yeah, these these... All these beliefs are in direct contradiction to my personal beliefs and Elizabeth's as well. Yes. Um, this is a an interesting historical event, it, or part of U.S. history that has a, a troubling following, but the event itself deserves more attention from a broader audience. Um, not 
not for the reasons that like far right extremists want to promote it for, but because there are a lot of there were a lot of mistakes made that led to a disaster. Whether like the the beliefs of the people involved aside, a lot of this is still quite atrocious. Yeah, because there would be a narrative a narrative later on that Vicky was like gonna sacrifice the children and shit like this and it's like you gotta like look at the facts and it's like I'm not in a sense they're victims in the story but you also can't ignore everything else so that's what makes it so complicated but I just wanted to let you guys know that a we don't support any of these things b I try to do my best to distinguish when I'm quoting something from Randy so that way or even other sources, so that way you're not taking it necessarily as fact, but that way you can take it with a grain of salt, believe it if you want, that's up to you. Anything else? That does it. All right, let's talk about the Aryan Nations. <laughs> Sick. Woo! All right. Located in the beautiful area surrounding Hayden Lake, Idaho, rested the world headquarters of the Aryan Nations. Boo, what's our, what's our policy when we're driving through Idaho? The Idaho Stop Law. Mm-hmm. Which is, you don't stop in Idaho? Yep. The hate group held an annual Aryan Nation World Congress, an event that drew in all kinds of anti-Semitic, racist, and xenophobic characters to hang out, eat some food, mingle, burn crosses, salute Hitler, etc. There's a former university professor, University of Montana professor that would take students to the World Congress, and I wish I could remember his name. Um, oh, yeah, he's from the African American Studies Department, too. Yeah, like Tobin... Totally talked about him. Yeah. We had him in for a class. We went to University of Montana, so this is pretty, like, there's some uh, proximity there. Yeah, yeah. Um, the Aryan Nations was founded by a man named Richard Butler from the Anti-Defamation League, or ADL, website. Butler, born 1918, is a World War II veteran who later worked as an engineer for Lockheed in South, Southern California, where he was introduced to identity teachings by William Potter Gale a retired colonel and aide to General Douglas MacArthur in the Southern Pacific. So, you know, all sorts of good good stuff involved. He's leader of the paramilitary California Rangers and a founder of the Posse Comitatus. By the mid-1960s, Butler had fully embraced identity... Capitalized. Yeah, capitalized identity. identity Christian identity. The Christian identity movement, which this actually doesn't do a good job of clarifying. But anyways, Butler had fully embraced identity and served as national director of the Christian Defense League an organization founded by the most prominent popular popularizer of identity, Wesley Swift. Butler worked under Swift for 10 years until Swift's death in 1971, at which time Butler proclaimed his Church of Jesus Christ Christian to be the direct successor to Swift's ministry. Butler moved the congregation to northern Idaho, where it became, in his words, a call to the nations, or Aryan nations. Its goal, as a subsequent newsletter stated, was to form a national racial state, we shall have it at whatever price is necessary. Just as our forefathers purchased their freedom in blood, so must we. We will have to kill the bastards. During the early 1980s, Butler followers joined the members of the neo-Nazi National Alliance and Ku Klux Klan splinter groups to form the Silent Brotherhood, known more widely as the Order, which planned to overthrow the United States government in hopes of establishing an Aryan homeland in the Pacific Northwest. In order to raise funds for this revolution, members of the group went on a crime spree in 1983 and 1984 that included bank robberies, counterfeitings, bombings, armored car holdups, and murder. 
The counterfeiting operation was based at the Aryan Nations compound. The order's, co the order's activities came to an end in December 1984 when its founder and leader, Robert, Robert Matthews, died in a fire during a shootout with federal agents on Whidbey Island, Washington, and many of its members were caught and incarcerated. Yet, the order, and to a lesser degree, Aryan Nations, has retained a mythic status in the far-right underground. Yep. The order's anti-Semitic and anti-government sentiments were spread amongst those who found themselves at Hayden Lake. According to Jess Walter, the FBI, ATF, which is the Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms... Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Bureau. Firearms. Right. It should be BAF. Yeah. And various sheriff's departments had all had informants in the Aryan Nation stating, quote... At some meetings, half the participants were reporting to some agency or another, with some spies reporting on other spies without even knowing. Classic. In the fall of 1986, five bombs went off in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, set off by a group calling themselves the Order Two. The bombs damaged the federal courthouse, three businesses, and the home of Reverend Bill Wasmuth, a leader of the Kootenai County Human Rights Task Force. Randy Weaver attended his first Congress in that same summer of 1986 with a man he had met two years prior named Frank Kumnick. To get a feel for the event, here's some snippets of a New York Times article on that year's Congress. Quote, a gathering of Nazi sympathizers, white separatists, anti-Semites, and Ku Klux Klan members convened, the, convened at the Aryan Nations World Congress here this weekend. They called for a white, male-dominated homeland in the Northwest. The meeting involved two days of speeches, Nazi-style salutes, and a cross-burning, for which the Hayden Lake Fire Department issued a bonfire permit, according to Captain Gordon or Orisher, because there isn't any regulation for burning a cross. Young men in camouflage uniforms, wearing mesh masks, walked around the perimeter of the 20-acre property of the Reverend Rich Richard Butler, one of the leaders of the Aryan Nations movement. They were armed with AR-15 automatic rifles, that's questionable, but never mind, several wore swastika armbands. The grim young men contrasted oddly with Sunday outing quality of the gathering. Apart from an occasional racist t-shirt message and Wehrmacht flags, that's the SS skull. Mm. Actually, don't quote me on that. That might just be the swastika flag. Hold on, fact flag. check. So, just so everybody knows, I started all of this research. How many pages of research do I have? Like 27? And I had started it and got pretty far, and then I fucking accidentally deleted it. There it is. It's, yeah. the, it's the Iron Cross swastika flag. Cool. Okay. Now we know. I didn't study World War II any more than I had to in my history degree. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I studied, uh, well, yeah, with Tobin, um, dismantling white supremacy. But, you know, there's so many flags. They all just kind of start to run together, and they all look the same, and they're should all I, should stupid. I restart that last bit? Oh, no, you can keep going. The grim young, grim young men contrasted oddly with Sunday outing quality of the gathering. Apart from an occasional racist t-shirt message and Wehrmacht flags, the meeting could have been any, any summer gathering of working-class men, women, and children. Also in attendance was Daniel Johnson of Los Angeles, a representative from the League of Pace Amendment Advocates, which is named for James O. Pace, the author of the idea. Continuing from the same New York's time, New York Times, New York Times, the article. It opposes the 14th Amendment because it extends the Bill of Rights to the states and assures citizenship to all. That done, the group would repatriate all non-whites after paying compensation for taking their property. Mr. Johnson seemed to be alone among the delegates in considering Jews white and therefore eligible to remain if they were not more than one-eighth Middle Eastern. 
But Mr. Butler, along with most of the other participants, said he no longer believed it would be possible to expel non-whites and said he preferred splitting the country up with whites in the Northwest and rest and the rest allotted to Zog, meaning Zionist occupation government, which is what the racists call the federal government. Mr. Butler said the separations of the, of the Northwest from the rest of the country was already underway in the movement of white families to the region. The term Zog is going to come up in other things and also brings up sort of a uh, weird contradiction in beliefs about like supporting Israel, which is an, in, is an inherently Zionist uh, government, but then being opposed to Zionist occupation governments. It's, it's full of contradictions because it's a stupid contradictory belief set. Um, See, this is why I wanted you here. Yeah, yeah. So what is Zog from the ADL website? <laughs> the history of the present Zionist occupied government of the United States of America is a history of repeated injuries and usurpations, all having a direct object, the establishment of an absolute tyranny over these states, moreover throughout the entire world. We, therefore, the representatives of the Aryan people in council, appealing to the supreme god of our folks for the rectitude of intentions, solemnly publish and declare that the Aryan people in America are, and of rights ought to be, a free and independent nation, that they are absolved from all allegiance to the United States of America, and that all political connections between them and the federal government thereof is and ought to be totally dissolved, and that as a free and independent nation they have full power to levy war, conclude peace, contract alliances, establish commerce, and to perform all other acts which independent nations may of right do. And the way I worded that, it makes it sound like the ADL is promoting this. Um, they're quoting somebody else. Probably the Aryan Nations. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. So that's... Yeah. Don't and then worry. here's a cute little picture of Randy wearing his Say No to Zog shirt. Yeah. If you look up pictures of Randy or watch the PBS documentary, you'll see that photo. So clearly... He identified a lot with the other Congress attendees. That being said, after the events of Ruby Ridge, he would speak publicly about his beliefs, stating multiple times he was not a racist. This is what he had to say about the other attendees at the Congress. There was quite an assortment of people there from all over the U.S., a few from Europe and some from Canada. I talked to a number of people there who also did not agree with the Aryan Aryan Nation racial views. They, like me, enjoyed sharing common beliefs and learning about different viewpoints. question what the (laughs) common beliefs are not that but anyways i only listened to a couple of the scheduled speakers in their church before i realized i didn't want to hear any more tirades against non-whites i was much more comfortable outside on the picnic tables mingling with the crowd i can understand hating someone because they hurt you or your family but to hate someone just because they're of another race is sheer ignorance unless they're jewish yeah he doesn't like jewish people the question it's like there's always the question is like was was randy a white supremacist he claims he's not. He probably was. Was he actively organizing in a white supremacist fashion? Probably not. Was he anti-Semitic? Definitely. No question. Anyways. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, in Jess Walter's book, my I like all the information in the book, but he doesn't make clear. Like It, it reads like a novel, and I kind of hate that. Like I like my, this person said this, and I got that from an audio recording i got that from court documents and it, it doesn't do that and so um he tells this story about and we'll get into this um about a conversation between randy and some undercover agents and again i'm, I'm not trying to like defend randy here and they're talking about martin luther king jr and randy calls him like the n-word and i'm like i don't disbelieve it but it's like is this a recorded conversation that you got this from or is this 
the FBI agents saying that because like I don't trust a goddamn thing coming out of their fucking mouths. So like they they fucked up badly. They're trying to cover their asses and make the yeah. make the weavers look as bad as possible. And again, the weavers were bad people. Make yeah. it, not the kids. Kids are generally innocent, especially when they're eight. People are complicated. People are Some complicated. people more so. Yeah. I, you know, personally, if there was an Aryan Nations compound, even if I was trying to get to know my neighbors, I wouldn't go there. No, but, I would uh, move. <laughs> but, yeah. Anyways. Uh, yeah. Anyways. <clears throat> oh, my God. Excuse me. Like I said, I'm not here to defend Brandy Weaver or to claim to know his true beliefs. My goal here is to provide as much information and context as objectively as I can. But, anyway. So, if Randy Weaver claims he isn't racist, just a separatist, why are we bringing all of this up? While the Aryan Nations is a designated hate group, what drew the Fed's attention isn't the white racism or necessarily the anti-Semitism, but rather the anti-government sentiments and actions. The existence and prevalence of modern groups like the Proud Boys Show us that the government doesn't really care until it becomes a problem for them. Like, they can have their peaceful protests, they can march in the streets, but as soon as it's like, as soon as it's like, oh, we're gonna storm the Capitol, it's like, oh shit, now it's our problem. It's like that robot chicken sketch of fucking, like, Kid Hitler. And, uh, oh, god damn it, someone out there listening is like, oh, I know that sketch. It's hilarious. We'll watch it later. Now class. My teacher, I will need the Czechoslovakian boy's desk as well. What's going on here? This is not my problem. Now it's my problem. So, anyways, uh, like I was saying, this, and you mentioned Timothy McVeigh earlier, there are so many repercussions and echoes and whatever else you want to call it from... This, this event. Yeah, this massive fuck-up inspired a lot of other fuck-ups. Yeah. All this information, all this context is so that you know what's behind every the entire shitstorm that's about to go down. And that is where we're going to end part one. All right. Yeah. We did it! We did it. Yay! <laughs> now I have to finish reading the book. Good, good. Do you have any thoughts before we wrap up this episode? No. He's shaking his head. All right. Thanks, boo. <laughs> yeah, no problem. 